You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, hey, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, let me just tell you about this birthday party next Sunday real quick. It's going to be unbelievable. Um, as Josh was saying, we, again, the, the whole purpose is to really celebrate what God has done in our midst in two years. That's why we're like having a party, not about us, but it's about what God has done in our midst and how he's built his church and how he is moving. Um, we are going to have tons of poo-poos. We're going to have desserts. Um, you know the gals that make our amazing coffee every Sunday, Creature Coffee? Well, they're like stepping it up. They're like, hey, we want to make cold brew popsicles, lily koi popsicles, Thai iced tea popsicles. So it's going to be unbelievable. There's cupcakes. There's, I mean, again, like Josh said, there's nothing really better you have to do. Everything can wait. Just come bring your friends and, and celebrate with us next Sunday. Um, if you don't know who I am, uh, my name is Riz. I'm the pastor here at Reality Honolulu. And uh, my beautiful and wonderful wife, Zoe, is leading worship here this morning. Um, that's her. And we have two crazy kids. Love them. Uh, a three-year-old boy named Liam and a six-year-old girl named Eva. Um, they're over there playing right now, but uh, we're just thankful to be a part of this community and to be a part of what God is doing. Um, but without further ado, we are going to get into the Word of God. And so why don't you open with me to Exodus chapter 25, if you have a Bible. If you don't, you can share with someone next to you, or as always, we have those Bibles right as you walk in the door. You can take one and use it, or if you don't have one, keep it. It's our gift to you. Um, but we're going to be going through Exodus 25 through 27 today, so three chapters, and I'm um, going to be looking at how, about the Lord, how the Lord dwells among us. So I'm going to read just the first eight verses, then pray, and then we'll walk through the rest of the text uh, throughout our time today, but Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, bear, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then... Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Mahalo ke'akua. Thank you, God, for this morning. Thank you that you've gathered us and that you've given us your word. You've preserved your word for us, and it's living and it's active. It's for us, and it's profitable for teaching and correcting and training every man and woman so that they'd be adequately equipped for every good work. God, we, we, we come under your authority this morning and say, God, speak to us. Give us understanding to your word. Holy Spirit, anoint me to communicate these truths this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this last part of Exodus, right, the chapter we're in, verses, 
chapter 25 through the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, um, can be hard to read. Many of us, if you were reading this at your coffee table or your kitchen table in the morning, there's a good chance you'd be skipping these parts. No shame there, I've done it myself. You question like why we're reading it. Even on Sunday morning, a few weeks ago, when we read the law, many of you came up and said, what are you doing? Why are we even reading this? Or maybe right after we read it, before we studied it, wondering like, wow, can't we just skip this? How is this relevant? How is this pertinent to us? But very purposefully, why we're literally walking through every verse and every word in our study in the book of Exodus is that we truly believe that this is the word of God. Right? And all of it is important. And we may not see the importance because we maybe lack the context of the significance. And so the hope is to actually dig in to everything from genealogies to weird details to strange laws, whatever it is, to see what God is doing in the book of Exodus and allow the Lord to speak to us, even though it may seem at first reading that it's irrelevant and outdated and confusing or even strange. But we, like what's core to our belief in this church and as believers is that we believe what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And also, if we don't give attention to the Old Testament, if we don't give attention to these things, we're really missing we're missing out on what God is intending us because the book of Romans says whatever things were written aforetime in the Old Testament were written for our learning. This is Paul writing to the, Roman, to the New Testament church in the New Covenant. says, hey, what happened before is important and it's meaningful for now. And so, again, we're, we're attempting to do this because what we're going to see if you read the New Testament over and over, there's reference to the tabernacle and its furniture. For example, like the whole book of Hebrews, you cannot understand if you don't understand or even have a grasp of Exodus and Leviticus. Cannot read it. There's too much reference back to it. I mean, you can, but you're not going to get the full meaning of it. A.W. Pink says it this way, speaking of this kind of end of, end of Exodus. He says, we have now arrived at the longest most blessed and least read and understood section of this precious book of Exodus. For the beginning of chapter 25 today, to the end of 40, accepting the important parenthesis in 32 to 34, the Holy Spirit has given us a detailed description of the tabernacle, its structure, furniture, and priesthood. It is a fact worthy of our closest and fullest consideration that more space is devoted to an account of the tabernacle than to any other single object or subject treated of in holy writ. I love his old English right there. Its courts, its furniture, and its ritual are described with a surpassing particularity of detail. Listen to this. Two chapters suffice for a record of God's work in creating, like the whole world, and fitting this earth for human habitation, whereas 10 chapters are needed to tell us about the tabernacle. Truly, God's thoughts and ways are different from ours. 
It's important that we look at this in all of its weird, strange details. If God wrote it and he preserved it for us, it has a purpose. And so uh, a little bit different than normal. Normally we'd read like all the text at the beginning of the service and then walk through. We're going to be doing a little bit different in that I'm going to read kind of chunks at a time and pull out understanding and significance as we walk through it. You guys get with that? But first, what is this thing, the tabernacle? Some of you have a, may have a great understanding. Some of you may have never heard of it before. The tabernacle, this tent, represents the presence of where God dwells. This was a portable, earthly dwelling of Yahweh, of God, used by the children of Israel. And literally, it was to be a sanctuary, meaning holy place for God to dwell in their midst. And there's very much purpose in the structure that God would dwell among them. And this was used for hundreds of years until the building of the temple. The temple would replace the tabernacle as the place where God's presence would dwell amongst his people. Uh, A couple pictures, just Google pictures. Super simple, right? They're in the desert, they're camped all around, and the tabernacle, the, the walls, the courtyard, the altar, the holy of holies is just literally a portable tent that they put where God's presence would dwell. And so what today's three chapters is doing is describing in detail, yeah, this is like a life-size model in Israel you can go see today. Um, It would just look like that, pretty simple, but extreme significance into the purpose of it. And so what we're looking at is in these chapters today is, is the context, the significance, and the details of what Israel was supposed to make, how they were supposed to make the tabernacle and what it was supposed to, to look like and be like and, and the reasons why. In order to understand the importance of this, we need, we need to, to think about Israel for a second and put, themselves, put ourselves in their, in their shoes. Up to this point, Israel had known Yahweh, had known God as their creator and their rescuer, right? For for this whole generation and generations before them, they had grown up in slavery and, and God was pretty quiet. He was absent, so to speak. But he knew from their ancestors and their forefathers about this God that had met with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But for this generation, they knew those stories, him being creator They knew of promises, but in the last year or so, they've actually seen God, his power manifest in incredible ways, right? With the plagues, with the parting of the Red Sea, God's been leading them with a, uh, you know, pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, and now they're at Mount Sinai, and the presence of God is so powerful that it's thundering, and there's fire, and so for Israel, all they've known is like God is this big creator, powerful God that's kind of crazy, But now, where's God? God is now come to the center of their camp, and they would now know him up close and personal. Very different than they had seen in the past. And what was happening with the tabernacle is that God's promise was coming to pass, that he would be their God and they would be his people. God's intention back in the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, from the beginning was to dwell amongst his people in perfect union, to be their heavenly father 
to his sons and daughters. Sin, sin messed out all that up. We're going to talk about that in a second. But God's intention when he created all of humanity and all of the earth was to dwell amongst them. The tabernacle is the place now where the presence of God is actually going to dwell. What we just read in verse 8 was God saying to Moses, to the people, make a sanctuary for me that I might dwell among them. And all these seemingly strange details, which we're about to read, point to his character and his attributes, his holiness, his worth, and his glory. Down to every detail was communicating something about God and his intentions for his people. One commentator said it this way, as God begins to introduce the instructions for the tabernacle, we observe the awesome presence of God described. God graciously chose to dwell with his people. He was not an absent father. He was deeply involved and invested in the lives of his people. His presence brought both reassurance and holy fear. His presence set apart Israel from all other nations. The almighty God dwelt among them. Pretty incredible. But on the flip side, what this did was it also reminded Israel. It pointed out to Israel the chasm of separation that their own sin and unrighteousness had created between God and them. And it's very clear by the elements and the safeguards that God puts in place that literally if people were to enter into God's presence and, and disregard these safeguards, disregard these things that God set in place, they would die in the presence of God. They would literally die of his glory and his holiness. I mean, it's a big deal. And even despite this, though, even despite that God was... Dwelling in their midst, there was still this separation. There wasn't still complete union with him. And God's holiness and their, their sin left a longing in their hearts to be near to God. And so what the tabernacle do, it not only, it's like a paradox. God's presence is in our midst. We can't really go near it. God is so good. He's wonderful. We can't get too close. And every mundane detail is pointing to one that would come that would be the better tabernacle, the better temple, and the one that would make a way. Hint, that's Jesus. Everything in the tabernacle would point to him. More of that to come. This is kind of part one anyway. The priesthood that we're going to study in a few weeks will build upon this. But without further ado, let's look at the details and draw out the meaning. So let's look at the first piece in the tabernacle of the ark, Exodus 25, 10 through 22 says, have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. 
making atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the other cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one, one piece with the cover and two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark of the tablets of the law that I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant and the law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So if you've seen Indiana Jones, you've seen Temple of the Lost Ark, you've seen the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that's pretty much what it is. What it is. There's, there's the cherubim, there's, there's, the, the sti- there's, there's the rods, the sticks, so you don't actually touch the Ark of the Covenant. But the ark, what this represented was the person, the power, and the presence of God. Like this is where God would meet with his people. This first item mentioned here is absolutely the most important. It was the only furniture in the most holy place that was like the innermost place in the tabernacle where the the high priest only once a year could go to and meet with God. But specifically, the presence of God would dwell powerfully in one spot when God descended, right in the middle of the cherubim right there. Right? The, the majestic holiness required these two transport poles to prevent any man from directly touching the ark, for if they touch it, they would die. And this mercy seat or atonement cover served as a lid on the ark. Here is where the Lord would meet with his people. And everything down to the detail is important. On the top of the mercy seat, right there's the cherubim of of gold-faced angels right there. And each of them faced each other. And these tremendous angels bowing down, reminding us of the great reverence we must have before our God. Like there's so much significance to everything. You could make a whole sermon about the ark. But there's a few items also that were placed inside the ark. We see this in Hebrews, but the Ten Commandments were in there. A pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded. And all of these things served as reminders of where the Lord had brought them. And he was faithful and worthy of worship. All, every single down to every single detail was for a purpose. And it was supposed to point to what God, who God was or what God had done. More, more to that, but let's move on to the table of showbread. Exodus 25, 23 through 30. God continues this instruction manual, so to speak. He says, make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide and a cubit and a a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Also make around it a rim a hand breadth wide and put a gold molding on the rim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings are to, are, are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold and carry the table with them and make its plates and dishes of pure gold as well as its pitchers and bowls out for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence of this table to be before me at all times. Here's what it may have looked like. Here's, this is the table of showbread. I can show the next picture real quick if we have it. 
This table was to be made out of acacia wood, covered in gold like the ark, and it was to be set up in the holy place. And the table, the reason why it was significant, it was, it was holding 12 loaves of bread. And every loaf of bread represented each tribe of Israel. So every tribe, right, all two and a half million Israelites were, were made up of 12 tribes. Every single piece of bread represented one of those people amongst those tribes. In other words, the bread was a reminder that every tribe played a role in God's family. Each tribe had a seat at the table. It's very significant. It wasn't supposed to be 11, it wasn't supposed to be 13. There was 12 pieces of bread in the Holy of Holies near the Ark of the Covenant. And this table was not only supposed to be inclusive to all people, all of his people, but it also reminded them of God's provision. Right? This was the Lord's table and his bread. And at the moment, you have to remember what they're eating. They're eating manna day in and day out for 40 years at this point. God is providing for them outside right now every single day all their needs. This table was reminding them of God's provision. And the priests later were told to eat it, and it would remind them that God provided their daily bread. The whole point of this table was to remind the people of Israel that God was their sustainer and that God's fellowship was displayed through provision. God is inclusive and provides for his people. This is what this piece of furniture in the tabernacle was supposed to communicate to the people of Israel. Next, God goes on to give these instructions to Moses with the golden lampstand. Exodus 25, 31 through 40. God says, make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and its shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch. Three on the next branch and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand, there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair. Six branches in all. The buds and branches shall be one of one piece with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. Then make its seventh lamps uh, its seven lamps and set them up on it so that they may be, they might light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So this lampstand is what very similar to the menorah we may know, but it's huge. Uh, next one. <clears throat> this golden lampstand was positioned in the holy place directly across from the table we just talked about, and it was handcrafted and made from about 75 pounds of pure gold. This is a real deal. And this lamp's purpose was pretty ordinary at first sight, right? It was literally to bring light inside this dark tent. Right, you step in the tent and there's curtains and it's to bring light. 
But there's more significance to that. We see throughout scripture, right, that God is light. And his light symbolizes his presence and his holiness. In the book of Revelation, we actually see that the removal of a lampstand means God's presence has departed. So what this lamp that's always supposed to be lit in the tabernacle would remind Israel is that God is light and he's with us all the time. He gives light to the dark places. He leads us and he guides us. God is always with us and the light is always on. God was with them. Then we, we see some more um, descriptions of what this tabernacle should be like, right? This is Exodus 26. You guys tracking with me? I know there's a lot more to each one, but just go with me, okay? Just go with me. Exodus 26, verse 1. Make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the, the end curtain in one set and do the same with the end curtain in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set with the loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the, the tabernacle is a unit. Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together into one set and, other, and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional strength, a length of the tent curtains, the half curtain is to be left over, is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for a tent covering of ram skins dyed red and over that a covering of the other durable leather. Pause for a second. If you didn't think God was into the details of your life, he for sure is. Verse 15. This is crazy. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and make 40 silver bases to go under them. Two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end, that is the west end of the tabernacle, and make two frames for the corners at the far end. At these two corners, they must be double from the bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a long ring. Both shall be like that. So there will be eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. Verse 26. Also make crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and five for the frames on the west 
at the far end of the tabernacle. The center crossbar is to extend from the end, end to end at the middle of the frames, overlay the frames with gold, and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown to you on the mountain. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven to it by a skilled worker. Hang it on the gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant Law in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put a lampstand opposite it on the south side. For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. Make gold hooks for this curtain and five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and five cast bronze bases for them. Remember, we're going to get to chapters 35 through 40 where the construction of the tabernacle actually happens. And the reason why it's detailed is someone literally has to make this and correctly and right. And there has to be skilled workers involved. And so, again, this is like an instruction booklet. We, may, we might skip it. But here's what it looks like. Here's the significance, too. These are the curtains and the construction and how big it was supposed to be. These are the blueprints of the tabernacle. And in this section we just read, God describes specifically how to build the curtains of the tabernacle. Once again, what are on these curtains? They're cherubim. Right? There's these, there's these warring angels were woven into the curtain. And the significance was to show and remind Israel that, that it was to protect the entrance to God's presence just like Eden. Genesis chapter 3, who was protecting the Garden of Eden? It was cherubim. This would remind them of paradise lost. This would remind them of how life was prior to the fall of man. That even the embroidery on the curtains would tell them a story. And that God, he would dwell among them, but access to him was limited. See, God's presence was guarded. And these curtains were constructed, excuse me, not to keep the people out of the presence of God, but actually to protect the people from God's presence. Right? There's three div divisions in the tabernacle. There's the courtyard, there's the holy place, and the most holy place. And that final separation be, you know, be, into the holy of holies was a veil. And this is where God would meet with the high priest once a year. And all this to say, this was teaching the people that, there was, that, that forever they can only approach God through sacrifice. That there were certain things and there were certain times and there's only certain people that could actually enter into the holiness of God. That God's holiness was actually veiled to most of humanity still. And what this was doing was it was ultimately pointing to the sacrificial lamb that would one day take away the sins of the world, allowing all of humanity to freely approach God's presence. Hint, that's Jesus. Even down to the embroidery on the curtain 
was pointing to someone that would come, that would one day tore, tear, excuse me, that veil. One day, the veil that separated God's people from God's presence that we just read about, when Jesus would die on the cross, what did it say happened in the temple? The veil was torn from top to bottom. These curtains that we read about were symbolic of one that was to come. You guys with me? <clears throat> Moving on, the bronze altar. We're getting there. Exodus 27, verse 1. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece. And overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes, and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the ring so that they will be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. This is the brazen altar. This is the altar in, in the courtyard in front of the Holy of Holies. So the instructions we see here is to make a bronze altar, right? It stood in the courtyard as the people approached, like they, they entered into the courtyard. They weren't inside the curtain tabernacle that we just said, but this was in the courtyard and it was before you went in. What was there? It was an altar to make sacrifices to God. And again, people, the layout, the architecture of the tabernacle is significant. Again, the first thing that people would do as they came into the courtyard was that, that symbolically they would know in order to be in God's presence, there needs to be a sacrifice. Communion with God requires sacrifice. The altar was the first thing the worshiper would see before entering. But also this, the massive size of the altar confronted them with the massive gap between them and God. There's sin and his holy presence. And there was still separation. As close as they were, they were still outside the holy of holies. And in the book of Hebrews, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And people were reminded of that as they entered the courtyard. One commentator said this. We now know that Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the only one to bridge the gap between man and God. The gospel reminds us of these truths and the Lord's Supper gives us a holy ordinance to remember them. The Lord's Supper being communion that we have. We approach God only because of blood. Christ's blood is that of the new covenant. His body was torn for us. His blood was poured out for us. It is only through him that we have access to God. What this sacrificial altar before the presence of God was, was it proved that we, that we couldn't make it to God on our own. That there was one that would come that would sacrifice his own life. That we could freely enter God's presence because of Christ's work. We're going to get to that next week, though. 
Two more. You guys with me? Two more. Are you with me? Okay. I don't know. I'm scared a little bit. Okay. I know. It's a little longer. Let's go, though. It's, we're almost there. Exodus 27, 9 through 19, the courtyard. God says, make a courtyard for the tabernacle. The south side shall be 100 cubits long and is to have curtains of finely twisted linen with 20 posts and with 20 bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north sh side shall also be 100 cubits long and is to have curtains with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The west end of the courtyard shall be 50 cubits wide and have curtains with 10 posts and 10 bases. On the east end, toward the sunrise, the courtyard shall be 50 cubits wide. Uh, curtains 15 cubits long are to be on one side of the entrance and three posts and three bases. The curtains 15 cubits long to be on the other side with three posts and three bases. For the entrance to the courtyard, provide a curtain 20 cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer with four posts and four bases. All the posts around the courtyard are to be silver bands with hooks and bronze bases. The courtyard shall be 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide with curtains of finely twisted linen, five cubits high and with bronze bases. All the other articles used in the service of the tabernacle Whatever their function, including all the tent pegs for it, are those for the courtyard and are to be bronze. Again, you've seen a picture before, but if this is, you know, the holy of holies, this is the holy place, you've got the Ark of the Covenant, table of showbread, the lampstand, the courtyard is inside the tabernacle walls. And this whole courtyard right here, it's about 10,000 square feet. Not huge, but this would dwell in the middle of the Israelite encampment. Literally, all of Israel was supposed to camp around this. This tabernacle and its courtyard were to be in clear sight for everyone and in the middle and center of their attention. And once again, it was to remind Israel that there was distance between them and God. That was a sacred place. That was where God's presence was. God was making a way for them to meet his presence, but there was still separation. There was still limitations on interacting with God. And for the people, they needed a high priest. We're gonna get to that next sermon, but for us, we know that we have a great high priest who works on our behalf and enables us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Hint, that person's Jesus. But once again, the courtyard, the holy place, the most holies, the high priest that could only enter into God's presence, this is all that Israel saw. And it all pointed to one that would come. But once again, there was limitations to God's people entering God's presence. And lastly, it's the oil for the lampstand. Verse 27, verses, uh, chapter 27, 20 through 21. Lastly, it says, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light. So that the lamps may be kept burning in the tent of meeting outside the curtains that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law. Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. So the priests, 
Aaron and his sons are responsible, right, for collecting oil. It has to be the purest of oil. And they need to keep the lamps burning in the tabernacle morning and night. And again, this is reminding the people that God's presence was among them. Even when darkness covered the land, God's light would still shine brightly. And all of this, this light was to remind the, the people to worship God day and night. God's light was shining on them. They were his people. His presence was with them. So here we go. Three chapters of detailed tabernacle. You can build it now if you want. Sunday project. This is it in all its glory. The Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand burning day and night. So what does all this mean? What does it point to? It's good you know how to build it now, but what does it point to? What does it mean for us? John Owen said, everything Moses did in erecting the tabernacle and instituting all its services was intended to testify to the person and glory of Christ, which would later be revealed. Down to every detail. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In Greek, you know what that means, that, that word dwelling is? Tabernacle. God tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the tabernacle points us to someone, to the true presence of God dwelling with us, Christ. As good and wonderful and amazing as the tabernacle was, God was with his people in the center. There was still this separation, this gap, but all was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And I will end by reading an overview of how Jesus is our better tabernacle. Listen to this. <clears throat> the tabernacle provides an amazing representation of Jesus Christ that we need to behold. Jesus is the true light and the true lampstand, the light of the world. We were once darkness, but now we are the light in the Lord. Therefore, through Christ, we must walk as children of light. God's presence is also portable in the new covenant. God's spirit comes and lives within his people. Christ is the mediator who shed his blood to redeem sinful man. He was forsaken. We, by grace through faith, can enter now into God's presence. Jesus was the better ark of God. He, like the ark in the story in 1 Samuel 4, was taken captive by a foreign army and took the punishment the people deserved. Then what seemed like defeat ended with his triumphant victory as he crushed the serpent's head by the third day. Jesus also represents the ultimate provision of God. He called himself the bread of life, and whoever comes to him will never perish. He is the bread we desperately need. Jesus is the better altar. His ultimate sacrifice is the source of our salvation and the source of grace by which our hearts are strengthened. Now we enter through the torn veil. 
The torn body of our Christ provides direct access to God. He can provide access past the cherubim. Instead of defending against access, we are now welcoming back in because blood has been applied. Jesus is bringing us back to Eden as the high priest who enters the holy place for us entails the veil for our entrance. And what an amazing grace that we can now boldly enter in. The Israelites came trembling, yet in John chapter 20, we read these amazing words, to my father and your father, he is our father. For us, God is building a new dwelling place. God's spirit dwells in us individually as believers and corporately as the church, a building made of living stones where Christ is the cornerstone. Guys, may the glory of Christ that's represented in the tabernacle lead us to worship this morning. Guys, no longer are we outside the gates, outside the courtyard, outside the curtains. Again, maybe this is lost upon us, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, if we accept that and believe that, You know what that does? You know what's crazy? Is the Bible actually declares us righteous. How? We didn't do anything because of what Jesus did on our behalf. So you know what happens now? We stand before God in right standing. That's what righteousness means. Why? Not because of what we did, because of what Jesus did upon the cross. Now, the book of Hebrews says that we can now boldly approach the throne of grace to receive help in our time of need. What the tabernacle points to is the better tabernacle in Jesus. And what Jesus did is bringing us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What's God's, what's his whole intent for every single one of us? Doesn't matter what you look like, where you're from, what your issues are what your life's been like. You know what God wants? He wants you. Yeah, all all of you, all your junk and all your stuff. Don't clean up. That's what he did. He he died so that he can clean you up. But you don't have to like get get your life in order and I better like stop drinking and smoking and doing this before I go to church and before I come to Jesus. No, come as you are. God wants us. He wants to be with us. He loves us. If you truly love someone, it shouldn't matter what you do with them. It shouldn't matter what event or how much money you have or what your life looks like. If you love someone, you just want to be with them. That's what God wants. God wants for all of us. And sin has separated us from him. And he's desperately trying to get us back. He's so desperate that he would give up what's most precious to him, his son. I want my people so bad that I'm going to send my son to die so that I can get them back. For most of us, we're in this room because we've experienced the love of God in this way. We are his and he is ours. But maybe there's some of us in this room today that we do not know that we are still far off. I am honored and blessed to tell you that Jesus has done the work. It's a free gift to you. All you need to do is believe and receive and say, God, I'm done. I want you. I want to be with you. 
I'm done with living for my own and for myself and for my own story. I want to live in your story. Your way is better than my ways. 